Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Happy Sunday. Uh, I trust that during this week, last week after Easter, you had opportunities uh, to keep the uh, stupendous event, the resurrection, uh, more prominent in your thoughts, uh, in your emotions, and in your actions. Um, as I prayed about what to share, for the next uh, set of messages, I kept going back to the resurrection as something we should uh, further explore. Real quick, here uh, were the basic suggestions I made last Sunday about how to keep the resurrection more front and center uh, to us. You see there. Um, uh, but I was also hoping that we could stay connected to the church keepers right, for the year Colossians 1, 28 and uh, 29. We spent a number of weeks on the We Proclaim Him uh, section by examining ways uh, we can proclaim Christ through our evangelistic efforts. Uh, my inclination uh, is to further devote a few messages each to the discipleship and multiplication portions of the key verse, uh, basing our need on uh, for discipleship on Paul's words uh, right there in the middle, right? Uh, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. I was hoping to work through that kind of second word idea, uh, namely teaching uh, today uh, as an essential part of our discipleship process. Therefore, although it sounds a little ambitious even to me, I'm going to attempt for sermonic purposes to merge these two currents, if you will, by talking about discipleship, but one that is informed more fully by the resurrection. Uh, I hope it can make sense. I hope uh, you can stay with me on this. Um, to that end, here's my title uh, for today, uh, Resurrection of Teaching, right? Resurrection Teaching. You know, I'm going to say some stuff about what it means to teach the resurrection of Christ. What is the correct understanding, the correct doctrine. Uh, but as the parenthetical implies, I also want to um, talk about us kind of rediscovering, uh, even revivifying, so to speak, kind of the centrality of teaching. And its counterpart, learning, teaching and learning always go hand in hand, uh, to the discipleship experience. 
We certainly need to know the right doctrines, the truths of God's word. Uh, we should teach properly. But it's also essential to learn uh, as well. So teaching, learning, right, as it pertains to discipleship, uh, focused on the literature. Okay, so this has been a lengthy lead up to let you know how I landed on 1 Corinthians 15 as today's text. Uh, it is the longest and considered one of the major teachings in the New Testament about the resurrection. Uh, I realized that as recently as the start of the pandemic in 2020, around Easter time, I gave several messages on this very chapter. Right? And although it's not very far in the past, a couple years ago, I deemed it okay to visit, to revisit this chapter. Uh, I tend to think of the pandemic as kind of a time warp anyway. Like, it's hard to recall what happened like even like a month ago. And then some things feel like it's been ages, right? Uh, our sense of time has gotten distorted. Whether that's true or not, uh, I'll take another swipe at helping us elucidate the resurrection more fully and deeply, hopefully for our mutual benefit. Well, let's start with a little bit of a general consideration of what discipleship, what does discipleship mean? In the New Testament, being a disciple uh, is the primary depiction of our relationship with Jesus. Uh, being a disciple wasn't some kind of high-level stage of Christian life. In the New Testament, becoming a Christian wasn't just about praying to accept Jesus into your life as Savior. When you called yourself a Christian, that was equivalent to being a disciple. Christian and disciple were synonymous. Indeed, uh, Acts 11, the description, the word Christian, was used to refer to kind of special disciples, super disciples, if you will. Like, like today, you have Christians, and then if they're really committed, you call them disciples, right? It's the other way around. Everyone was a disciple, and if they were really like Jesus, you called them Christian, uh, the little Jesus. Uh, modeled by the 12 disciples, who Jesus specifically chose to be with him and follow him and learn from him, uh, being a disciple is considered a privilege and a responsibility. It was a commitment for sure often involving a heavy investment of time by the disciple to the master and vice versa, such that uh, sufficient inculcation could take place. It often involved prioritizing the relationship, disciple and master, above occupation, above hobbies, above even family. Jesus calls his disciples thusly, in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, for whoever loses his life for me will save it. Well, we could probably spend our entire time expounding this rich text, but for our present purposes, please make note of the uh, self-denying, sacrificial, the imitative elements that we see here. To be a disciple of Jesus even in our day, is to know him personally, and to walk in his way, even at the cost of living life as we please. Again, that's the lesson of Jonah. Jonah wanted to do his own thing, but God wanted him to be a disciple, a servant of his. That's where teaching comes into play. Uh, Jesus taught and showed his disciples who he was and what he stood for. 
Jesus himself is often referred to as what? Rabbi. Or as a youth, as a children, they rather not. Um, however, discipleship was more than kind of how we understand teaching in modern America today. The disciples were expected to be more than mere pupils or, or students. It involved study and, and uh, listening, but it's more of an apprenticeship. Right? Apprenticeship. Or like you could say that the master was trying to clone himself or himself, reproduce. Uh, Paul even goes further, encapsulating the idea in familial terms, referred to his closest disciple Timothy as what? My son. My son. So a disciple had to carefully and accurately learn what the master's ways were. And for that, um, there was and continues to be, in my mind, no good substitute for solid, accurate teaching. That's why even now, growing Christians need to regularly devote consistent time uh, studying and learning about Jesus. Uh, we need the Holy Spirit, we need mature Christians to share and teach us about how to follow Jesus more faithfully, more closely. We need teaching, we need to learn. I don't know if it's just kind of a trending culture in churches uh, these days, or maybe because the pandemic has uh, taken so much out of us. I feel like uh, kind of studying the Bible as it's been taught heretofore, uh, it just seems less kind of compelling or interesting. No, it's very possible that people who do teach and preach um, have lost some of their craft or their anointing. It's interesting, I've talked with a number of pastors, and I'm just trying to think about it myself, but um, kind of the enthusiasm, the, the, the hunger for teaching slash learning seems to have waned or declined of late. Uh, less people uh, seem interested and engaged uh, in the teaching that is offered. Now, it might be the case that other priorities and commitments uh, compete for our limited energies and times. Uh, pandemic obstacles and distractions have certainly been on the rise. Everything takes triple the effort and energy. But I think attendance and energy is uh, lower and sporadic. Institutional authority, which kind of connects to teaching, including ecclesial authority, that's overall taken a hit, <laughs> understandably so. Uh, credibility gaps, uh, if not chasms, have uh, surfaced. Uh, political strife, moral lapses, cultural wars, these all undercut the power and attractiveness of the usual voices of truth and uh, leadership. You know, I struggle myself with, uh, with staying interested, staying uh, desiring certain types of teaching. But attention span. Oh man, I mean, they're, they're tough to begin with, but now they're awfully short. Zoom fatigue is a real thing. I think many people, um, especially during our day, listen or look to preaching and teaching to perhaps uh, get encouraged or inspired or motivated. And that's great. 
I think that is one of the functions of teaching. But it should be more than that, right? Teaching and learning involve more than that. I think we should think more in terms of what I want to call spiritual formation, development, maturation, growth. Kind of go beyond just kind of hearing something that makes you survive that week or get you through uh, your next challenge. Uh, teaching should be processed, it should be retained, it should be built upon. Words like application, repetition, reproduction, extension should be in view. Selective listening, like just taking what you want, taking what's interesting, taking what you're interested in. That should not be the norm. Note-taking, for example, it seems really rare these days. Maybe you know, you've heard it all before. Maybe you don't like what's being said. I understand that. But I personally found it always easier that if I'm going to have to teach this eventually, what I'm hearing, what I'm listening, what I'm learning, then at least I need to take simple notes. Right? I couldn't have imagined surrounding college or graduate studies you know, based on this bad memory <laughs> of mine. Whatever the cause, if there is one for the decline of teaching slash learning, my prayer, my hope, at least for myself and, and all of us, is that again we revivify, make alive, resurrect the hunger for teaching and learning, at least in a discipleship context. Not for the sake of head knowledge, but so that we can know the truth and by holding to it we can be set free. Or more free, freer in Christ. Um, that's what I was kind of nodding at in my alternate title there, res The Resurrection of Teaching in the Curriculum. A great verse which uh, illustrates this is 2 Timothy 2 2. So let's read it together it's on the screen. Ready to go? And the thing in the presence of many witnesses, trusted reliable men will also be qualified to teach others. Here you can see the emphasis on teaching and the generational nature of discipleship. Right? Paul says that you know, there's like four generations here. Right? The things that you have heard me, Paul, say in the presence of many witnesses, so people who are hearing it, entrust to another generation of reliable learners, disciples, listeners, teachers, who eventually right, are qualified to teach others. So at least four. I would say a fifth one that Paul himself needed to learn, we'll get to that, learn what to teach. He needed to be a disciple himself. We're never fully self-made, right? I like the term autodidact, right? self-taught. And there is importance of that. There, you need to have that in your Christian journey. But you can't be self-sufficient. You can't survive on your own. It's important that we learn from others and in some form, be teachers of other learners in turn. It doesn't have to be in a formal, educative, or classroom setting, but the absorption and transmission of spiritual truths are envisioned as normative. That's normative. We're supposed to do that all the time for the life of a disciple. Okay, so with that very long on-ramp, uh, I'm going to try to take discipleship and teaching. Hopefully I'm not too far... Oh! Into the realm of resurrection, of the resurrection event, pursuant to 1 Corinthians 15. First point 
to me, is like I said, Paul himself needed to uh, learn about the resurrection before he could preach it and teach it to others. This may seem quite obvious, but it echoes what we've been saying about teaching and learning how to be a disciple. Right? Throughout this passage, but especially in the first three verses, there's a strong accent of teaching uh, and learning. Right? I highlighted them for us. Not really nice. Thank you, Peter. Uh, <laughs> remind. Okay. Um, I preached to you, which you received. Okay. Don't throw it, hold firmly. What I preached to you, verse 3, for what I received. Right? All these, they point to the transmission, the transference of information, of knowledge, of truth from one person or a group who possesses it to someone who desires to possess it. So, even the great apostle Paul had to be a learner first. And I would argue that that's what made him such a stellar teacher. Because he learned so much, he was able to share so much. And recapitulating um, some of what I said uh, during messages um, about the church keepers, right? I, I emphasize teachability. But it's important if we want to experience the keepers this year to be teachable. Not only at the start of discipleship, the start of our Christian life, the start of that journey or road, but throughout our Christian experience. Never should we feel like I know everything that I need to know. Never should I feel that I, you know, I don't have to uh, continue to learn. Remember, I, I threw in that fancy word, inveterate. Right? Inveterate means habitual, constant, even fixed or hardened. An inveterate espresso drinker, an inveterate liar. Uh, I said, let's be inveterate learners. Uh, learn enough to teach. Right? We'll be better disciples for it. The resurrection, uh, in particular, I would say, needs to be learned and relearned. It's not stuff that you can readily intuit. It's not something within our normal ken. We have no personal experience of what death is actually like. Maybe we are close to it, but we never die, let alone existence after death. We've never passed through that stage or gone through that portal. Uh, hence, what we need to do is to pour into, pour into the biblical accounts of the resurrected Jesus. What does the gospel say about it? What do the epistles say about it? What does the apocalypse say? Apocalyptic writings say about it. How did the early church understand resurrection theology? Does the Old Testament have anything to say about it? What does our prayer life teach us? What do godly men and women who have reflected a lot on the resurrection say about it? And so on and so forth. So I would suggest uh, even being uh, instructed by appropriate like, scholarly or expert writings in the field, these might be helpful. I referenced that Forgotten Gospel book last time. Um, there are a number of good works out there. If you're avid enough, uh, N.T. Wright, the mega scholar, has an 817 page page turner, a classic, waiting just for you. Try to whet your appetite so that you and I can delve more into uh, the Word of God and uh, spiritual truth. Um, formative for me uh, in my early Christian life was uh, really kind of listening carefully 
trying to process, and then following up with questions. I, I was uh, a question machine. Right? Some of them were good, some of them were bad, but I did a lot of like kind of trying to cross check things and verify, get answers to questions. Uh, and I think it really helped my own kind of process, discipleship experience. To not only uh, learn for my own benefit, but hopefully um, it helped shape what I eventually came to do, right? to be uh, a minister. So the first point is uh, that the resurrection, especially, needs to be learned before it can be taught or proclaimed. So the next point, the second point to make about resurrection teaching relates to accuracy. The soundness, right? The, uh, the truth of what we are teaching. It's presuppositional to say that discipleship needs uh, the teaching of truth rather than falsehood or speculation or irrelevance. So unless we teach and learn the right things, we go no, nowhere in the plane of discipleship. But Jesus was very careful to convey truth about God and Scripture and human nature to all in sinful. The New Testament writers, especially Paul, were very keen on safeguarding the truths of the faith and refuting false or heretical teaching. So it's like the Timothy again, wherein Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 13, What you heard me, what you heard what you heard from me, keep as a sound pattern of teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit which, uh, who lives in us. Uh, the entire letter is quite the clinic uh, on the importance of sound teaching. Paul charges Timothy repeatedly to preach the word correctly and frequently and to be wary of how people will reject sound doctrine. Instead, they'll surround themselves with talkers who will indulge what the listeners' itching ears want to hear. But there's even a reference in chapter 2 about two false teachers, right? Hymenaeus and Philetus, who wandered from the truth. Guess what their wandering was about? The resurrection. They claimed that the final resurrection of all was already had already taken place. Their irresponsibility, Paul laments, had destroyed the faith of some. So, you know, it's, it's, again, a very obvious point that uh, our teaching, what, what we've learned and what we convey, should be correct, should be accurate, should be right, should be truthful. That is why, in the context of the resurrection, uh, accurate teaching is essential. Why? Because eternal life is at stake. We're, we're talking about something that is life and death. Right? We're talking about uh, eternity in heaven or uh, eternity separated from God. So Paul places a premium on the orthodox teaching of the resurrection because it will not only determine proper belief, but it will impact where that faith leads the believer, right? namely to salvation or damnation. So by believing in the right things, um, salvation is a result. By this gospel, you're saved. Was too and the converse is that false teaching will block us from salvation. 
we will have the leading name is GC. So because of that importance, which Paul calls of first importance, he is emphasizing correct doctrine. So uh, here's what that doctrine is with respect to the resurrection. He lays out the essential elements. If you guys don't did, didn't look at <coughs> this passage and you just somebody came up to you on the street or in the subway and say, well, what is what do I not need to know to understand the resurrection? What would you say? Or the, the gospel even? Uh, I think sometimes we would hesitate or we get a little bit kind of confused and kind of mix things up. So I think it really helps to even even though it's kind of straightforward here, to kind of nail it down. I think that's what Paul is trying to do. He's reminding these Corinthians who had actually gotten confused about the resurrection. He's trying to kind of clarify for them. So he lays out the essential elements in verses 3 to 5. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Peter, the 12, 500, etc. So four components, simple components, that Paul would say, you have to get it right. You're going to get the whole thing wrong. First is that Christ died. The death of Jesus is a crucial element of our gospel. Death was a penalty incurred um, judgment because of sin. Atonement could not have happened without the shedding of blood, without death, actually. So uh, in any, any gospel that avoids the, the death of Jesus, that gospel cannot save, right? That's a vain gospel. That is heterodox uh, teaching Jesus really died. There was a, um, an argument made, I think it's in the Middle Ages or maybe around the Enlightenment, where um, they, they said that uh, Jesus didn't actually die. And so, because he never died, there's no such thing as a resurrection. And their argument, it was called the swoon theory, S-W-O-O-N. Jesus was so kind of overcome by his trauma, and by his injuries, uh, you know, in, in the crucifixion experience, that he, like, got close to death. Right? He fainted, he swooned. Maybe his organs shut down, but it looked like he was dead. And so they left him for dead, thinking that he was dead, but he actually recovered, right? He got healed, he kind of came back strong, and then he showed up and said, I'm alive, I died and I'm resurrected, and everybody, all the gullible people started to believe that. Right? That is an example of where, uh, you know, knowing the right teaching, being versed in uh, truth, can protect us from, from these kind of uh, arguments. Uh, and we could go into the apologetics or the details of how you know, that Jesus did not survive uh, the crucifixion and other telltale marks that he actually was, he actually had died legally, medically, completely. He was uh, all dead. One of those telltale marks is the second thing that Paul mentioned. Not only did Christ die, but that he was buried. 
the burial of Jesus almost seems like a kind of um, a side note, right? like just kind of a subsidiary detail. But it was important that burial of Jesus be established, again, to uh, confirm his death. There was an actual tomb, there were actual people that verified that he died and they closed the tomb, which you only do for dead people. So point one, or aspect one, is or detail one is he died, detail two is he was buried, detail three is that on the third day uh, he rose from the dead. Of course, the resurrection is the, is the big point, but let's not overlook the little, it's not just a passing detail that he came back on the third day. Third day rising was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was repeated by Jesus numerous times to his disciples, and I think you know, in a few cases just a crowd. But by returning to the grave on the third day, Jesus was claiming, was proffering evidence that he was more than just a mere human. He had supernatural knowledge and that God endowed him with supernatural power. This proved that God had a special approval uh, upon Jesus. Right? So he's dead, he's buried, third day he rose, and then he appeared, he made post-mortem after death appearances uh, to a number of eyewitnesses, a number of people, known people, public figures, if you will. Uh, these occupy several verses in our passage. And again, this goes to the reliability of the resurrection, the historical reliability. Uh, these appearances were not only attested by the people themselves, but they were was widespread. Others came to know this. And it wasn't a small group. This 500 is actually pretty uh, an amazing uh, point of corroboration. Right? Um, although some of them had died, in the interim, many was, were still alive. In other words, Paul, I think, is saying that so that if you doubt whether Jesus really appeared, go ask these people. They're still alive. You can find them. You can corroborate uh, what they say. And this was, again, to erase any doubts that Jesus had indeed not overcome or conquered death, or that this was some sort of story or legend drummed up uh, by the early Again, it's a simple process of going through what Paul points out. But I think by doing this, the, the tenets of the gospel, the, the truths of the faith, the orthodox teaching, that can um, more deeply implant or embed in us. Sometimes, right, even me, I get the gospel confused. I get swayed by some philosophical argument or some of my own, I get plagued by my own doubts. Right? And that might be true of you and me. Uh, maybe we haven't given much credence to the resurrection since it seems kind of like hard to figure out or we've believed or we've kind of strayed away from the real gospel and we've kind of lived more of a worldly, a futile gospel. Um, maybe you've never truly thought and wrestled with, okay, this, this, this happened. What does that mean? I hope our time together, I hope our uh, messages and, and, and the follow-up, um, that you can really um, gain confidence, gain conviction, gain certainty even, 
into uh, the resurrection. And that it can help you on your journey to God, on your uh, walk with God. And again, it's not just a one-time deal Paul talks about. Uh, continually holding on. Okay? Continually hold uh, be hold firmly and continuing in it. Okay? That, you know, drifting or, or kind of losing sight of what are the, the main uh, elements of, of correct teaching. It's a strong possibility that we have to uh, be cautious about. So the last point about teaching the resurrection is how that teaching gets applied. How does it manifest beyond just kind of intellectual uh, consideration? The resurrection, the teaching of it, it's more than just kind of dry doctrine. It can be dry. All, any teaching, maybe all teaching, typically dry. But the resurrection has to be more than just propositions, historical and factual that they may be. The resurrection, by nature, is transformational, if you want to say it. We mentioned this a little bit last Sunday when we talked about how the confidence in the resurrection changed the hearts of the fearful disciples. That everything changed right? uh, for them. They went from fearful to bold. Um, I indicated that this was more than just uh, like, uh, something that they believed in, but it was through a personal encounter, the appearance of the resurrected Lord. Um, that's what catapulted them into such uh, powerful and effective witness uh, to that resurrection. So I want to <laughs> make up a term. I want to say that the impact of Jesus rising from the dead, right, of the right teaching of his rising, should be resurrectionary. <laughs> no such word. But I, I thought it sounded kind of like revolutionary. <laughs> when we say that's revolutionary teaching, or it's a revolutionary point, or it's a revolutionary experience, meaning that your life is now, it's gone through a whole big circle. It's, it's tumultuous, it's turned upside down because it's so like awesome. It's truly amazing. So a, a resurrectionary impact um, upon our life. Has that happened? Uh, how can that happen? Why isn't it happening? There's something to kind of mull over, to pray over, to analyze, to uh, even kind of maybe grieve over that after all these years, after knowing the teaching and even teaching it, someone like me doesn't have a resurrectionary uh, difference. It certainly had that kind of impact upon Apostle Paul, right? Paul's testimony is that by learning and applying these essential truths, he became a new man. Right? His life was resurrected from the dead. Uh, in Ephesians, he says that we are dead in our transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God raises us up when we put our faith in Christ. So I think Paul pretty much viewed his life, his spiritual conversion, as a resurrection. So he was struck with blindness uh, on the road to Damascus, like the light shone, and he pretty much fell off his horse, 
and it, his companions thought he was dead. So Paul's saying, I died. Right? I really died. And then um, he was struck with, uh, uh, he, uh, after he was, he, was he, had, he had that blindness representing his dad. And then for three days, there's number three, he did not eat or drink. He was by himself. That's a burial, right? In darkness, imagine that. You can't see anything. Your whole life has just been like, the rug has been pulled out from under you. You're, you don't know what's going on. You don't eat. Basically, Paul uh, experienced a tomb-like situation. So, he had his death, his burial, right? And then he had his resurrection. When God sent a fellow a believer, Ananias, to come and lay his hands on Paul and says, Brother Paul, or Saul, my brother Saul, restore your sight. God has given you new life. Paul opens his eyes, scales fall from it, and he's different. He's a new man, new life. Everything has changed. Thereafter, he's baptized, quite symbolizing the resurrection, and then he makes appearances. He goes to uh, people um, that were afraid of him, that considered him a foe, an enemy, and he says, Jesus has changed my life. He has poured his love out on me. I want to pour my love out on you. So the people that were his foes become his friends. And the people that were his friends before, fellow Pharisees, fellow persecutors, fellow Establishing people, those that wanted to snuff out the Christian movement, those friends are now being his enemies. That's the kind of resurrectionary change that happened in you know, Paul's life. Because it um, had such an impact uh, on him. It wasn't just limited to that early kind of honeymoon or... Uh, First love experience throughout the rest of his earthly life, of his missionary tenure, Paul uh, says that he works hard. Right? The grace of God, you know, all this he sees as completely a gift, right? Especially, he's particularly undeserving to be the recipient of a favored post mortem appearance. Right? He's the least of the apostles, one abnormally born, all, all that stuff. A lot of self-abnegation there because he used to be the persecutor of the church. And then he became the spokesman, the missionary, the leader of the church. That, that, again, that, again, that kind of resurrectionary change, that's only by God's power that that could happen. And Paul says that power is still working in me. I'm still telling people, I'm teaching the resurrection, I'm living the resurrection, I'm learning the resurrection. He doesn't take any credit for it. He points to God's goodness, God's grace. Wrapping up. So the resurrection uh, is, of course, a doctrine that we kind of derive from the biblical accounts. But it's not just only you know, it's a proposition. Something there. It's not a, only a far-off future. It's not only like uh, something that we should look to many, many years or at the end of history or, or in heaven. 
today, now, this moment. 12.36 a.m. That's my bedtime. That's my message time. Uh, it should hit us. Uh, it should move in us. Uh, Mona let us in that, um, that 70s uh, hymn. I, I love the testimony behind it, right? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. All fear is gone. Because I've spent time with the resurrected one, I'm confident that he holds the future. That should be either our actual testimony or our desired testimony. That's how the teaching of the resurrection can make us uh, disciples, the kind of disciples the Lord is looking for and that he desires and he needs. That's the goal of teaching. That's the, especially the goal of proper teaching about the resurrection. Pray with me. Lord, we try to take what Paul says about the resurrection and try to learn it and then hopefully to see its um, transformative effect in us and then be equipped to share it with others. Help us to have um, resurrectionary testimonies, resurrectionary experiences with the glory of the gospel of the grace of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.